I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I mean, what if they say I'm no good? What if they say, get out of here, kid, you've got no future? I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. Marty McFly. In 1971, two young men named Robert stepped onto campus at the University of Southern California for the first time. It was September in LA, when temperatures still hover in the beach-going range, but the notorious smog and crowds are slightly less oppressive. Robert Zemeckis was from Chicago, and Robert Gale from St. Louis. Neither had, in their lifetime, seen a palm tree in the flesh. But there they met one fateful day in a Cinema 290 class. They were two of only a smattering of undergraduate students in a mostly graduate-level film course. So the virtual strangers got talking. It didn't take long to realize they had more in common than just their first names. The Bob shared an appreciation for lowbrow cinema in a time when highbrow French fusion was in vogue. They worshipped the Three Stooges and Jerry Lewis. They both owned the soundtrack to The Great Escape. They had similarly skeptical parents of their filmmaking aspirations. And they shared a profound love of bad time travel movies. Zemeckis wanted to be a director and Gale a screenwriter. So the pair decided to join forces. At that time... Zemeckis said USC's School of Cinematic Arts was as lowbrow as his taste in movies, a place where hippies congregated to make student art films that would never see the light of day, let alone a dime. But little did he know, the late 60s, early 70s was a turning point for the program, spawning what would later become known as the USC Mafia. A generation of rebellious filmmakers, including George Lucas, John Milius, John Carpenter, and one day, a pair of bobs. (laughs) 
time at USC, Zemeckis and Gale created several films, a couple of which had actual real-world potential. So they decided when they graduated to try and get the best one made. The only question was, how? One afternoon, an up-and-coming director came to the university campus to do a screening of his directorial debut. He was a USC reject named Steven Spielberg. The film was called The Sugarland Express, and Zemeckis was quite taken by it. So after the screening, he approached Spielberg and asked if he'd consider taking a look at one of he and Gale's student films. Spielberg was happy to. It was only 14 minutes long, but he totally got it, and the two decided to keep in touch. The rumor around campus was that after Spielberg graduated from California State, he started hanging out around Universal Studios so often that people eventually just assumed that he worked there. And he was brought on as a director in television before eventually moving on to film. So Zemeckis said, good enough for me, and promptly made his way over to the Universal lot to loiter. As author Cassine Gaines tells the story in his book, We Don't Need Roads, The Making of the Back to the Future trilogy, while Zemeckis wandered the halls, he kept his ears peeled for opportunities, anything that would allow a green writer-director duo to cut their teeth. And eventually, he overheard that Universal Television's series, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, which was destined to become a cult classic, wasn't renewed for a second season. It was in the bottom of the ratings, and its existing writers were jumping ship to pursue more promising projects. That left a vacancy in the writer's room for the remainder of the season. So Zemeckis reported the intel to his partner, Bob Gale. The two decided to write a spec script for the science fiction series. And to their utter amazement, Universal bought it. It was a massive win. Clearly, Spielberg's fabled method had legs. Next, Zemeckis heard the popular police drama McLeod was short a script. So he and Gale banged one out in just a week, and it ended up getting optioned. Then a different police show called Get Christy Love, a series Gale later said was one of the worst shows ever conceived, also needed a script. Enter the Bobs. They were on a roll. That's when Universal offered them something budding filmmakers only dream of, a seven-year contract to write television with salaries of $50,000 a year. In 1975, $50,000 was a lot of money, the equivalent of over 200,000 US dollars today. So Gail and Zemeckis enthusiastically said, no thanks. The pair were surviving on sporadic checks and Big Macs. $50,000 a year would have solved all their problems, except they looked at each other and said, we don't really want to write for television. If you listen to our fourth episode titled Rejecting Pretty Woman, you might remember the lesson screenwriter J.F. Lawton learned in the earliest days of his career. The Hollywood hierarchy at the time was not like it is today. Television writers were below film writers on the food chain. Even an unproduced movie writer held rank over a TV writer. Gail said they'd met other television writers who were exhausted grinding out scripts at such a rate they were burned out, without much room to move up. Television was an easy trap to fall into, and they didn't want to be pigeonholed. Gail's father said turning down a steady paycheck like that, barely out of their cap and gown, was, quote, the stupidest decision on the planet. But to Zemeckis and Gail, it was a no-brainer. They were young, they weren't married, didn't have kids or mortgages, and Gail later said they luckily weren't addicted to any expensive substances. They didn't need the security of a seven-year contract, but they did need representation. So they flashed their rejected job offer around town as proof they were the real deal and landed themselves an agent. The first order of business 
was to write a movie script. It was the mid-70s, and while Gail and Zemeckis were learning the ropes in television, some of their fellow film school alum were knee-deep in the silver screen. John Milius was a writer on Evil Knievel and Dirty Harry, and just a few years away from an Academy Award nomination for his 1979 film, Apocalypse Now. And Steven Spielberg had blown his up-and-coming status out of the water with his second film, Jaws which would go on to gross over $400 million worldwide. Gale and Zemeckis needed their own big break. The pair developed what they called the index card method, a system of visually plotting out a film using index cards, then pinning them onto a large corkboard. They'd place the beginning of the story in the top left corner and the ending on the bottom right, then slowly fill in the cards in between. They brought their first pitch to John Milius. He didn't love it, but he liked it and told them to bring him their next one. So the Bobs went back to the bulletin board. This time, they'd try their hand at an unexpected collision of genres, World War II and comedy, a concept the pair had toyed with for a couple years. The story took place in Los Angeles, mere days after the attack on Pearl Harbor when a woman skinny dipping on the beach spots a rogue submarine approaching land. The city erupts into a sheer fit of hysteria, fearing they might be the next target of the Japanese forces. They called it 1941. Gail and Zemeckis brought the script to Milius, and this time he agreed to produce the film and suggested they pitch it to Spielberg to direct. So off they sprinted to Spielberg's office. Steven Spielberg's latest film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was about to premiere and rake in a cool $280 million at the box office. He was in no position to take on pity scripts. But when newbies Gale and Zemeckis, with the support of John Milius, pitched him the script, he loved it and decided 1941 would become his next great film. Universal Studios greenlit the movie, and Gale and Zemeckis couldn't believe their luck. While their friends were out drinking and meeting girls, the 27-year-olds were hanging around a major movie set, watching John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd speak their dialogue. They had penetrated the well-guarded gates of Hollywood. It was a thrill to be on the inside. 1941 wouldn't be released for a year and a half. And in the meantime, Gail and Zemeckis were free to work on their next movie idea. One night, the two Bobs were sitting in Gail's apartment and they decided to throw on the Meet the Beatles record. When Gail picked up the album, he turned it over and on the back was the story of Beatlemania. He looked at Zemeckis and said, What if we wrote and directed a fun story about a group of girls waiting in line to see the Beatles in 1964? It was an interesting concept, and one that would let them explore the American graffiti film style they so admired, where an entire movie takes place in a single day. So they pitched a script called I Wanna Hold Your Hand to Warner Brothers. But there were only two problems. Warner Brothers didn't know if they could secure the rights to all the Beatles' music they'd need. And they had a strict policy against hiring first-time directors. So the Bobs called up Spielberg, who called up Universal, and told them to read I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Spielberg warned them Zemeckis was a first-time director, but if they liked it, Spielberg would executive produce the film as a vote of confidence. It was a leap of faith for everyone involved. But with that endorsement from one of the hottest directors in Hollywood, the Bob's second movie went into production. The late 70s were a busy time for Gail and Zemeckis. They were working on their two films simultaneously. 
And in early 1978, Universal sneak previewed I Wanna Hold Your Hand with test audiences. People went crazy for it. Gail said the reactions were dynamite. So in April of that year, when the movie was released, expectations were high. But as it turned out, the Fab Four-inspired comedy didn't incite much mania at the box office. Even with a little help from their friend Spielberg, the movie didn't draw an audience, and Universal lost money on the project. It was a massive disappointment. While filming 1941, John Milius told Gale the story of how he and Spielberg had talked about one day writing a screenplay about dueling used car salesmen, and that maybe it was an idea worth pursuing. Gale was intrigued, so he and Zemeckis put together a script about two brothers, each used car salesmen with competing lots directly across the street from one another. It was a comedy called Used Cars, and despite their first movie doing poorly at the box office, Spielberg and Milius jumped on board as executive producers. They pitched the story to Universal, but they passed. So the Bobs brought it to Columbia Pictures instead. The head of Columbia at the time, Frank Price, bought the script immediately. He thought it was hilarious because he was once a used car salesman himself. In late 1979, 1941 was finally complete. It made its way into movie theaters across the country. And Spielberg's next great film became his first great flop. Despite the big names on the bill, it just couldn't draw the numbers. The $35 million film made only $31 million in the U.S. And Steven Spielberg's reputation took a big hit. Suddenly, his directorial Midas touch was brought into question, and Gale and Zemeckis were horrified. The following year, used cars hit theaters. Like their first picture, it had done well in test screenings, but Gale felt the release was rushed and disorganized. It was bumped up ahead of schedule, and used cars premiered just a week after the movie Airplane. It was transportation overload, and once again, their movie bombed. The box office earnings were completely underwhelming. Roger Ebert gave used cars two stars, penning that the film was filled with, quote, too many ideas, relationships, and situations with plot overkill. Adding that he felt the same way about their earlier unsuccessful collaboration with Spielberg, 1941. I Want to Hold Your Hand, however, he actually enjoyed. Gale said he and Zemeckis were devastated. They feared they had become Spielberg's bad luck charms. While out on the promotional tour for Used Cars, Gale stopped by St. Louis, his hometown. He decided to see his parents while he was there. And at one point in the visit, Gale found himself digging through the storage boxes in their basement, where he discovered his father's high school yearbook. As Gale wiped the dust off the Class of 1940 cover, he felt a sudden curiosity to flip through the pages. It took only a glance to realize his father's sepia-toned smile was everywhere. As it turned out, he was the president of his graduating class. In all the stories Gale had heard over the decades, his father's student body political career had never come up at the dinner table. Gale and his father had attended the same high school, some 30 years apart, and Gale suddenly reflected back on the president of his own graduating class. He hated that guy. Gale said his class president was the kind of rah-rah school spirit keener he had always despised in school. A real square. Is that what his father was like? Then an even more unpleasant thought crossed his mind. If he and his father had been in the same class at the same time, would they have even been friends? Gail later said it's very human to wonder at some point into adulthood 
what your parents' lives were like before you came along. Were they nerds? Cool, preppy, rebels? Did they drink and smoke and go on dates? He realized a movie, to his knowledge, had never been made on the subject. So when he got back to Los Angeles, Gail immediately told Zemeckis about his idea for a screenplay. What if you could go back in time and go to high school with your parents? Zemeckis loved it. Finally, a new take on an old sci-fi standard. The first number they called was Frank Price from Columbia. Though Price's roaring laughter at their previous comedy, Used Cars, didn't resound across the country like they'd hoped, he was still a fan of their work and had told them his door was open anytime. Price dug the fresh time travel angle and offered them a deal on the spot to develop a screenplay. They'd call it Back to the Future, and Gale and Zemeckis pulled out their index cards. And we'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The first Back to the Future index card said that their main character, Marty, would travel back in time. The last one said that, well, he would travel back to the future. Now they just had to connect the dots. They thought it would be cool if Marty could invent rock and roll, but they'd have to establish his skills as a musician. So they added a card before he went back in time that said he played the guitar in a band. They wanted a reason for Marty to inadvertently invent skateboarding. There would be a wacky Professor Brown with a pet chimpanzee and a time-traveling refrigerator. The task for Marty would be to make sure his parents got together before heading back to the future, or his very existence would be in jeopardy. And they'd have to explain, in relative detail, how the time-travel part actually occurred. Though it sounds like a fun exercise, Zemeckis said it was an immense amount of very hard, back-breaking work. There was nothing enjoyable about putting that complex story together. Connecting all those dots and closing any loopholes was a feat. Gale typed every scene on the typewriter he'd bought his freshman year of college. And after five months of self-imposed torture, they had completed their screenplay. The Bobs walked the script over to Frank Price and dropped it on his desk. But Price was disappointed. 
he had hoped they'd lean into the, quote, raunchy comedy style of used cars. As author Cassine Gaines put it, what they gave him was a quaint movie about a kid trying to fix up his parents. Price decided not to greenlight the movie and instead put it into what's called turnaround, Hollywood jargon for opening up the rights of a script to other studios for purchase. So Gale and Zemeckis were saddled with the dreaded task of shopping their rejected script around town. Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis took their script to executives at Universal, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers. And every time, they got the same three responses. One, time travel movies don't make any money. Two, audiences these days want raunchy comedies, R-rated films like Risky Business. And three, it's too sweet for the rebellious 80s youth. You should really take it to Disney. So Galen Zemeckis marched over to Walt Disney Studios. Disney's executives looked over the script wide-eyed, then turned to the Bobs and said, are you guys out of your mind? There's incest in this movie. The scene they were referring to is when Marty has traveled back to the 50s and his 18-year-old mother starts to fall for him, even trying to kiss him in the car before the school dance. They said, we can't do that. We're Disney. We do family movies. This is way too raunchy. Galen Zemeckis met with every executive at every studio in the whole of Los Angeles. Twice. But time after time, day after day, they were rejected. No one wanted the time travel script that was somehow too sweet and yet too raunchy at the same time. Eventually, they stopped to count, and their script had received over 40 rejections. Gail said nobody wanted to make their movie. Nobody. He remembered being back at USC in the early 70s, when 10-time Oscar-nominated director John Huston came to screen The Man Who Would Be King on campus. He told the class he'd been trying to get that movie made since the 40s. And Gail remembered thinking, my God, the amount of focus and resolution you'd have to have not to let go of something over that amount of time. You hear these stories and you hope it doesn't happen to you. But suddenly, he understood where Houston was coming from. They'd exhausted every phone number in their Rolodex multiple times. Except for one. Steven Spielberg. The Bobs knew that Spielberg had been a champion of their work and a great mentor since the day he agreed to look at their student film at USC. He had believed in their talent through not one, not two, but three collaborations that flopped. Galen Zemeckis had reservations about approaching Spielberg this time, not because he might say no, but because he'd probably say yes. He'd probably totally get it. And if this one flopped too, they'd find themselves the undisputed common denominator of Spielberg's only four financial failures. They'd never dig themselves out of that hole. They were even getting superstitious about it. The Bobs didn't want to be the guys that only got jobs because of their famous buddy, but they also trusted Spielberg's gut. So they decided to approach him with the sole purpose of finding out if he thought they were justified in their determination or if they should take the hint and walk away. So they showed him the script, and just as they predicted, Spielberg thought it was fantastic. He said it was an unusual story, modern, yet based on old-fashioned principles like family, coming of age, and the generation gap between kids and their parents. So Spielberg enthusiastically and wonderfully offered to produce the film. But... Before they loaded up the plutonium, Galen Zemeckis decided to be candid with Spielberg and explained to him that they were afraid to be the reason yet another one of his movies failed. They appreciated his support, but were going to keep trying to make it on their own. Spielberg understood and graciously stepped back. 
At the very least, they got validation from their most esteemed colleague that they weren't crazy. Back to the Future was worth fighting for. Zemeckis needed a new plan. They couldn't endure another 40 rejections. In fact, there were no studios left to reject them anyway. The best they could do was keep waiting for turnover in the corner offices, and that could take years. That's when Zemeckis said, hold the phone. If the script was as good as Spielberg said it was, then maybe the tough sell wasn't the story. Maybe it was them. They had no track record. They were associated with Steven Spielberg's biggest failures to date. And before that, they'd only written a handful of episodes for canceled television shows. They needed to build their Hollywood street cred. So Zemeckis decided to play the long game. He said he would direct the next decent script that crossed his desk. He would earn the Bobs a good reputation. Then, he'd come back to the future. So Zemeckis took on the next respectable script that came along. It was called Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone told the story of a New York City romance novelist who's forced to brave the Colombian jungle in order to save her captured sister. The film got picked up by 20th Century Fox and would star Kathleen Turner Michael Douglas, and Danny DeVito. A huge cast and a recipe for success. But it turned sour quick. Turner and Zemeckis didn't get along. She thought Zemeckis spent too much time preoccupied with camera angles and not enough time with the actors. She felt it revealed his inexperience. 20th Century Fox started to lose interest in the production and shifted focus almost entirely toward their other films, anticipating that Romancing the Stone would be a colossal failure. Then in the winter of 1984, the movie hit theaters. And surprisingly, the numbers went up, and up, and up, until the action comedy earned nearly $100 million worldwide becoming 20th Century Fox's only hit of 1984. And suddenly, the Bob's phones rang off the hook. It was the studio executives who had rejected Back to the Future 40 times. They had a change of heart and now gave the too sweet yet too raunchy sci-fi flick two enthusiastic thumbs up. Their plan was working. With the whole industry wanting to be Bob Zemeckis' new best friend, it might have been tempting to lean in, but he swiftly rejected every offer in favor of his old friend, the only one who had believed in him in the first place, Mr. Steven Spielberg. Now, if their fourth project together failed, the Bobs had at least one successful movie under their belt. They wouldn't only be known as Spielberg's bad luck charms. So Galen Zemeckis approached Spielberg again and asked if he was still interested in making Back to the Future. And according to Bob Gale, Spielberg said, Damn right I am. At this point, Spielberg had directed Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, and E.T., which became the highest-grossing film of all time. And he had founded his own film production company under Universal, called Amblin Entertainment. And Back to the Future would become Amblin's very first film not directed by Spielberg himself. Instead, it would be executive produced by Spielberg and directed by one Bob Zemeckis. Finally, nearly four years after writing the screenplay, they had landed a studio. But before moving into production, the head of Universal, Sid Sheinberg, had a few notes on the script. First, he thought Professor Brown should be changed to Doc Brown, and Doc for short, because it was more accessible. Next, he wanted Marty's mother's name to be Lorraine, after his own wife. He also said Doc's pet had to be a dog, not a chimpanzee, 
He said, No movie with a chimpanzee ever made any money. Everyone agreed. And lastly, Scheinberg suggested the film's title be changed from Back to the Future to Spaceman from Pluto. Gale, Zemeckis, and Spielberg all hated that name. But they didn't know how to break it to Scheinberg. So Spielberg pretended the idea was a joke, a hilarious joke. He told Scheinberg they all had a good laugh and what a clever quip it was, knowing full well that Scheinberg would be too embarrassed to say he was serious. And it was back to Back to the Future. Gale and Zemeckis added a few more changes themselves. Zemeckis feared that if the time travel machine was a refrigerator, children who saw the movie might try climbing into their fridges at home, and that was a safety hazard. Plus, Doc would have to carry the fridge around in a pickup truck. Wouldn't it make more sense for it to be mobile? So they decided to make it a car, but not just any car, a DeLorean. Zemeckis liked the futuristic look and gull-wing doors of the steel DeLorean, and the fact it had clean lines that would complement time-traveling gadgetry they'd have to stick on top. Plus, if you're gonna build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? The studio told Gale and Zemeckis they'd have to get the movie made in a matter of months. If they couldn't meet that deadline, the film would get canceled. So they swiftly got to work casting the leads, Marty, Doc, Lorraine, and George. In 1984, Michael J. Fox was shooting the movie Teen Wolf. The hair and makeup were, let's just say, cumbersome. There was rubber and fur everywhere. Fox couldn't eat or drink. He said he was just miserable. And to make matters worse, one day on set, Fox noticed there was another crew nearby scouting for a different movie, a Spielberg movie, apparently called Back to the Future. Fox was jealous. He said he'd much rather be in the latest Spielberg movie than in a werewolf costume. Little did Fox know, he was their first choice for the lead. Galen Zemeckis tried to get Fox, but between Teen Wolf and playing Alex P. Keaton on the sitcom Family Ties, his plate was full. And despite their begging, Universal couldn't get Fox released from any of his contracts long enough to shoot the movie. They were already working on an unrealistic timeline, but Zemeckis said his young director ego kicked in and told him to just make a casting choice and move on. They auditioned many actors for the part of Marty McFly, including Johnny Depp and Charlie Sheen. But they eventually landed on Eric Stoltz. Stoltz had just come off the critically acclaimed movie Mask, and he checked all the boxes. He was the right age, he was talented, and he looked the part. Done. Next, they had to find their Doc Brown. Jonathan Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum read for the part of Doc, but the Bobs weren't convinced, so they put out a casting call. Christopher Lloyd had been a Hollywood actor for about a decade and had a recurring role as the quirky Reverend Jim Ignatowski on the popular TV show Taxi. But by 1984, he was ready to walk away from La La Land for good. He felt there was a sinister quality to the town, that he was selling his soul, and he decided to move to New York and return to his roots in the theater. But before he'd finished packing, his agent sent him the script for Back to the Future. Lloyd's agent suggested he read the script and come meet the director, Bob Zemeckis. Lloyd had never heard of Zemeckis. He took one look at the script and threw it straight into the trash. There was no point in reading it, He had already made up his mind. He was going to New York. But that's when a friend stopped him and said that a motto they'd always lived by in this business was to never leave any stone unturned. It was sage advice. So Lloyd fished the script out of the garbage and it was actually really good. So he met with Zemeckis and Bob's your uncle. 
They cast Red Dawn actress Leah Thompson as Lorraine and Crispin Glover, who'd acted with Michael J. Fox in Family Ties, as George McFly. And finally, it was time to start shooting. Five weeks into shooting, something didn't feel right. Zemeckis and Eric Stoltz weren't jiving. Stoltz's dramatic method style was clashing with the comedic script. His character, Marty, was a human among other humans, but he had come from another decade. So Marty was meant to react to the 50s as if he had landed on Mars. But Stoltz just wasn't hitting the mark. Zemeckis and Spielberg rewatched their near month and a half of footage and agreed. They'd have to make the tough decision to release Stoltz from his contract and cast someone else. Zemeckis felt terrible. He says to this day, it's the hardest meeting he's ever had in his life. But it had to be done. They convinced the studio to let them reshoot five weeks of footage and forgive the millions of dollars lost. The clock was ticking. There was no point in wasting more time. They knew Michael J. Fox was the one. So they went back on bended knee and begged Family Ties creator Gary Goldberg to take pity on them. Goldberg agreed to let Fox read the script. And if he liked it and wanted to take it on, they'd have to shoot all of his scenes around Family Ties schedule. Fox said Back to the Future was the best script he'd ever read. He didn't understand the logic behind the time travel, but neither did Marty McFly. So Fox hopped on board and agreed to adopt a brand new shooting schedule. It went something like this. From 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Fox would shoot family ties. Then he'd get into a station wagon with a bed in the back and be driven to the Back to the Future set, where he'd shoot from 6 p.m. to 4 or 5 a.m. Then he'd get back into the station wagon bed and be driven home, where he'd sleep for a few hours. Then it was back to family ties for his 10 a.m. call time. Fox said, sleep? What do I need sleep for? I'm 22. Back to the Future was scheduled to hit theaters in August of 1985. But when they ran preliminary test screenings, audiences went crazy for the movie. So Universal decided to bump up the already lightning-fast production to a 4th of July weekend release instead. That way, they'd draw the summer moviegoers. When he was later asked if losing that month had any major repercussions, Gail said it didn't give them enough time to nail the special effects on Marty's disappearing hand in the dance scene. But it came to the point where he had to say, you know what, it's good enough. Just nine weeks after the production wrapped, Back to the Future was locked and loaded. But Gail wasn't sure if they'd even make their money back on the film. They'd had successful test screenings before with I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars and always wound up disappointed and embarrassed. But on July 3rd, 1985, Back to the Future premiered and it came in at the top of the box office. The next weekend, it did even better until it reached number one for 11 weeks straight. The film became the top performing blockbuster of 1985, beating Rambo, The Breakfast Club, and The Goonies. Gale and Zemeckis couldn't believe it. They weren't Spielberg's bad luck charms after all. Maybe he was their good luck charm. And 35 years later, five years beyond the time Doc set the DeLorean dial at the end of the movie, Back to the Future still tugs on the heartstrings of people born in the 50s, 80s, and beyond, becoming one of the most beloved cult status films of all time. In fact, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry, citing its cultural and historical significance. Gale attributes the film's lasting success to the feeling he had that day he wiped the dust off his father's yearbook. 
the universal realization that our parents had entire lives before we came into the picture. It's hard to imagine anyone looking at the script for Back to the Future and not immediately jumping on board. It's a story about an unlikely friendship between a rebellious teen and an Einsteinian professor, with a time-traveling DeLorean that after a plutonium theft gone bad, ends up murdered by Libyan terrorists sending the teen back to the 50s to save his parents' marriage, otherwise he'd disappear, and in the process accidentally attracting his mother before setting the world right again and traveling back to the future via lightning hitting a clock tower and saving the professor's life. But 40 rejections later, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, with a little help from Steven Spielberg, push that DeLorean to the finish line. Because if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. the famous climactic scene in this movie? In order for Doc to get Marty McFly back to the future, every element had to align perfectly. Lightning had to strike the clock tower. It had to do so at precisely 10.04 p.m. Marty had to accelerate to exactly 88 miles per hour. The DeLorean had to cross the wires the moment the lightning hit. And Doc had to find a way to untangle the electrical cord seconds before the DeLorean crossed those wires. So many things had to line up to make it all work. In so many ways, it mirrors all the crazy factors that needed to align to get this movie made. First of all, Zemeckis and Gale both say they had to go through all their prior rejections in order to learn. Each rejection taught them a valuable lesson. Bob Gale said they had to go through all their box office failures in order to be prepared to deal with the success of Back to the Future. The script had to be rejected 40 times or it wouldn't have ended up with Steven Spielberg. Bob Zemeckis had to go away and direct Romancing the Stone to gain the necessary credibility to get Back to the Future made. Spielberg had to stay on board and interested over four years. Spielberg had to ignore the fact the other three projects he did with Zemeckis and Gale were flops. Spielberg had to start his own production company in order to greenlight the movie. Christopher Lloyd had to take the script out of the trash can. Gary Goldberg had to allow Michael J. Fox to read the script. Then Goldberg had to agree to let Fox do the movie at the risk of exhausting the star of his number one hit sitcom and Michael J. Fox had to be willing to work around the clock to make it all work. If just one of those elements didn't line up, if just one of those factors couldn't click into place, this movie might never have become a classic, or even happened at all. It took 40 rejections and four years for Zemeckis and Gale to realize their dream project and not one single element was easy. Lily Tomlin once said, the road to success is always under construction. It's a thought that's worth keeping close to your heart when you're struggling to make something happen. The universe will throw a lot of obstacles in your path because the universe needs to know how fully committed you really are. Because if you can blast through all the rejections and learn from the failures, chances are you'll discover something amazing will happen. You may start out in a used car, but you'll end up in a DeLorean. Never, ever give up. To the Future. Academy Awards, 1. Sequels, 2. Budget, $19 million. Trilogy Worldwide Earnings, $1 billion. 
Number of people named Bob associated with the film, 16. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We regret to inform you that this series is directed by Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. Rate and review our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.